listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. It's good to see you here today. We are in John's Gospel once again. We'll be in chapter 18, starting in verse 28. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here. Brad, who uh, typically would be preaching, is out of town at a conference in New Jersey. And so uh, I get the privilege of bringing God's word to you this morning uh, from a familiar passage, but one that I hope as we delve into it will just open up to you a greater love for our Savior. Um, So let me pray for us, and then we'll get to the text. Father, I thank you for the the privilege of being able to preach your word. I'm grateful for this passage this morning that we will look at together, and I pray that you would edify your saints and that you would call unbelievers to repentance and faith in the one Savior who is Jesus Christ. Lord, we, uh, we ask that you would bless us. Give us attentive ears this morning. Help us to hear well and to take to heart in your word to us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. It is said that Jonathan Edwards, the uh, famous colonial era preacher in America, one of the foremost minds of the American church, uh, was known in his preaching for using somewhat of a monotone kind of almost whisper. And so maybe you're familiar with the sermon that is oftentimes put forward as the example of his preaching, which is sinners in the hands of an angry God. Maybe you read that in high school. Uh, it's, a, it's an alarming sermon, and yet as he speaks it, it, it apparently was done with a very casual, monotone, almost whisper to it. As you may have noticed, I have something of a head cold, and so I'm going to try to pace my voice this morning, and at times it may feel a little Ed- Edwardsian, uh, but we will, we will see how it goes. Uh, so bear with me as we get into God's Word. John chapter 18, verse 28 is where we pick up our story, and if you weren't here last week <clears throat> or didn't otherwise get a chance to listen to Tyler's sermon on the previous passage from this chapter, I'd encourage you to listen to that, and in particular, because of how well he explains the the context of what is happening here and over the next several weeks. As Jesus faces his trial before the Jews and now today before Pilate, it's really important to remember that that this was very rushed, uh, that, that there was a haste to the proceedings that we are talking about here. Uh, because Jesus had reached a point, or at least the, the Jewish leaders had reached a point in their perception of Jesus that, that said there was no more time left on his clock for them. They had no more patience for the things he was saying, the things he was teaching, for the actions of his disciples. They had no more. And they were ready to have him executed. Uh, the problem, of course, is that the Passover is right around the corner. And so it needs to be done quickly because you can't uh, you can't be impure and the impurity of handling or dealing with an execution and a dead person and all that and the festivities to come. It's just too much. We need to go ahead and get this out of the way. Well, that continues here this week. Their, their haste to bring Jesus before Pilate is really a continuation of that same concern that they have to go ahead and get this show on the road. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas 
to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, they being the Jewish leaders, so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to Pilate, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So let's pause here and just make sure we understand what's going on. The Jewish leaders are eager to preserve the appearance of piety. Right, you can see this. They they want they need Pilate. They need Roman authority, but they don't need the impurity that comes with getting arm in arm with Roman authority. And so they refuse to go into Pilate's own house uh, because it would have made them unclean. And with the Passover at hand, they can't risk that. And so they're eager to preserve this appearance of piety, all the while pursuing perhaps the no, definitely. The, the greatest injustice that has ever been enacted in the history of mankind. I want you to see that incredible irony uh, and, the, and the incredible darkness of what they're doing. The Jewish leaders are willing to use Roman oppression and the Roman invader for their own political purposes and gain. Now they mention we don't have the authority to kill anyone. You may be thinking, well, the Old Testament certainly has capital punishment. Why don't the Jewish leaders just avail themselves of the means that God has given Israel to execute those who are doing wrong or, or blaspheming as the Jews have accused them here of doing. But the, the fact is that, that at this point in Israel's history, Jewish leadership is still subject to the laws of Rome. And so Rome has made it so that they cannot just execute people. Rather, any sort of justice on those lines has to be meted out through Roman authority. And so they need Pilate in order to gain what they're looking for here. But you notice when they bring Jesus to him and when they, when they explain to Pilate what's going on, he asks them, what accusation do you have? Their response in verse 30 is very telling. They say, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. We call that begging the question. Uh, because that is not an answer. What's he done? Well, if he hadn't done anything bad, why would we bring him to you? That is not exactly what I was asking you. Obviously, you think something is wrong. Uh, but the Jewish leaders are not interested in another trial. They've done that last week as we read, in, or really in this story only hours before, but as we read last week, they, they have brought Jesus to trial in the Jewish Sanhedrin. They've established the crimes that he's committed they want him done away. And so as they come to Pilate, they're not really interested or willing, it seems, to seek out another trial. They don't want him to adjudicate anything. They want him to simply stamp his approval on Jesus' execution. Now, they, they surely could have... There, there's so many ways that Jesus could have died. There's so many ways he could have been executed. Perhaps even vigilante justice uh, in the Jewish mind would have fit here somehow, despite the fact that it would have been frowned upon by Rome. But one other thing, one other element of the story that we need to understand is just how important it is that 
that crucifixion now becomes the direction of Jesus' trial. Now, they don't mention crucifixion here, but crucifixion is a very common form of Roman execution. It, it's clearly in the mind of the Jews. And of course, as we know this story, we know the gospel, we know how Jesus dies, we know that crucifixion is certainly coming. This punishment of crucifixion was not unlike hanging, although it is certainly much more painful and gruesome, and that the, the, the victims of crucifixion wouldn't die by trauma the way we might expect or even by blood loss the way you might expect, but rather victims of crucifixion would die typically by asphyxiation. They could no longer breathe. And as they, as they struggled for air, they would slowly expire on the cross. Now that's important because it means that punishment of crucifixion is similar to the punishment of hanging, which in the Old Testament is a sign of God's curse on a person. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, sorry, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, before you settle in for 30 minutes of reading the law, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23 says in Deuteronomy that if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. It's a sign of God's curse to be hanged. And in the mind of the Jews, it would have been a sign of God's curse to be crucified as well. Because in that sense, you're also being hung from a tree. Now, we know this, or we, we see this coming. It's important to realize, though, that even the Jewish leaders, they understood this as well. And if you're trying to present a Messiah who has lost his cause, what better way to do that than to curse him, or at least give the impression that he has been cursed by God? Why else would he have been crucified unless the Lord had cursed this man for how wrong he was about all the things that he said and did? This is a very deliberate turn of events, is what I want you to understand. The early church understood this to be the case. Acts 5.30, uh, the, the apostles say, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you, the Jews, killed by hanging him on a tree. And then Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And we'll talk about the crucifixion in coming weeks. But I want you to go ahead and have this in your mind. And I want, you, I want us all to remember the sovereign purposes of God, even in some of the darkest moments of human history, and even when it comes to the gospel, how the Lord has used and even wielded Jewish and Roman authority to bring about his express will and purpose. The Jews thought it would have been a failure on Jesus' part to be cursed by God. They didn't know that, that in fact, Jesus' whole mission was to bear the curse of God for his people. They were actually helping him accomplish what he set out to do. Let's keep going in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? 
your own nation, and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. The other translations will say, my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber which could also be translated as an insurrectionist. Barabbas, on some level, is viewed as almost like a terrorist to the Romans or maybe even a guerrilla warrior uh, to the Jews. But he is exchanged then for Jesus. Pilate has apparently been told something here by the Jews. We don't see them talk to him to express what the accusation is. Remember earlier they They said, no, if he wasn't guilty, why would we have brought him to you? And he says, okay, you know, and then questions Jesus. But apparently somewhere in there, the Jews do inform inform Pilate of what their concern ought to be or what the Roman concern ought to be, because he then proceeds to ask Jesus if he is a king of the Jews or the king of the Jews. It's as if the Jews knew that that Jesus' blasphemy probably wouldn't amount to a whole lot in Pilate's eyes. He He's not interested in a Jewish interreligious doctrinal squabble. He would just cast them away and say, you guys figure this out. But when the Jews present Jesus as a threat to Caesar, even if it's a silly one, Pilate can't let this go. He, he has to get to the bottom of this. Notice Pilate's air of authority here, but notice also the calm confidence, even compassion of Jesus in his interactions with Pilate. I realize that even in using your voice to give inflection to a story on some level is interpreting that story for you, but I, I do think that here as Jesus is speaking to Pilate, his questions are genuine. And the things that he's saying to Pilate, he is not saying to a generic human being, but he's saying to a man that he actually created. And so he asked Pilate, what, what do you say? What do you think? Even later on, as he's talking about how his servants hear his voice and heed the truth that he is bearing witness to, he, he seems to be even implying that Pilate himself has a chance to listen to the one witness of the truth. Jesus is always in control. He's always aware. Nothing has caught him off guard. He's calm. He's deliberate in all of his actions and words. Pilate, however, has a real disdain about him. He has a disdain and a, and a real angst towards the Jews. At one point, he even asked Jesus, what, am I a Jew? Come on, I don't know all this stuff that you guys are talking about, dealing with, whatever. I just want to figure out, are you a king or not? 
He's got a dismissive attitude towards Jesus. It's as if Pilate is somehow above the fray, or rather that all of these proceedings are kind of beneath him and his stature and authority. There's a bottom line for Pilate, which is, is Jesus a king or not? Is he a threat to the real king who is Caesar or not? And really, that's the bottom line of this whole passage. That's the question that we have to ask as we study this passage. We have to ask, is Jesus the king of the Jews? Is he a king? And if Jesus is king, what kind of king is he? And not only what kind of king is he, but what is the nature of his kingdom? Verses 36 and 37 then become the centerpiece of this passage because they highlight the nature of Jesus' ministry. In the heat of this moment, Jesus defines for Pilate exactly why he has come and exactly what he and his kingdom are like. In answer to my question, maybe you saw this coming, Jesus is the king of an otherworldly kingdom who has come to bear witness to the truth. Jesus is the king of an otherworldly kingdom come to bear witness to the truth. Let's ask some questions about that. What kind of king is Jesus? John has clearly been testifying to Jesus's rightful kingship throughout this gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 49, Jesus runs into one of his first apostles, Nathanael. And Nathanael, in greeting Jesus, says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Later in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5 and 11, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, a man with many questions about the nature of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Jesus tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and listen to these words, bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. Doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't this something that John has been hinting at, nudging us in the elbows about for the last book? Picking up in chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. This is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees And went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, a kingly animal to ride on, and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. 
The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The writing is on the wall. Here is a king, and he will take and win the allegiance of the entire world unless something is done to stop him. It's not just the testimony of John's gospel that Jesus is the king, the rightful king. It's really the testament of thousands of years of God's revelation. This has been a long time coming, even in the context of Scripture itself. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, the Lord speaks to Moses and declares to him what should be the case when the day comes that Israel actually has a king. At this point in Israel's history, they don't have a king. They have a Moses And their king is God. He's leading them through the wilderness by a fire and by cloud. But the Lord knows. And in fact, his plan, his design is that one day Israel would have a king. And when that day comes, here's what that king should be like. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, who shall set, or you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it and all read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Who is the king that the Lord would have for his people? He's a man who has been chosen by God from among Israel, a representative for God's people. He is humble before the Lord, leading God's people also in righteousness. He is attentive to the law and the word of God. In fact, in this case, the the king himself is responsible for making his own personal copy of the book of Deuteronomy. He's got to write it all out and have it there at his bedside table to read and reflect on all the time. That's the kind of king that the Lord has for his people. The problem, of course, in the history of the Old Testament is that none of the kings are like this. Even David, on his best day, still fails to uphold fully all the expectations of a divinely sanctioned king. 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel comes to the prophet, priest, Judge Samuel, and, and they, they demand, they want a king. The problem is that their, their demand is really out of an idolatrous desire to be like the nations, not necessarily to yield to and follow the Lord through a man whom he might appoint. And so they ask Samuel to give them a king. We won't read it, but Samuel basically tells them, this is a bad idea, and this is really going to burn you. And then, of course, he's proven right through the books of Kings and Chronicles. And the rest of, of Samuel itself Earthly kings will ultimately fail in this mission, but the promised king that the Lord is implying here in Deuteronomy 
is the one who Isaiah calls in chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Of course, all of this culminates in Jesus. All of this. I mean, none of these other kings measure up. And Isaiah, as he's writing these words, had to know he wasn't writing about a person that he would ever know of in his own lifetime. But rather, this is someone divinely ordained by God for the leadership of his people. The culmination of God's kingly design is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Listen to these words. He has, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain, the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You want to know your state apart from King Jesus? You want to know your state apart from knowing the Lord? Your state is that of an exile in a dark land. You live your days in Mordor, surrounded by ash and destruction. That is the kingdom that you live in. But God the Father, by his incredible love and by his grace, has, has plucked you, if you are in Christ, he has plucked you out of that kingdom. And he has planted you in the kingdom of his beloved son. Before you were... You were subject to sin, death, and hell. But in Christ, if he is your king, if you are his subject, you have redemption, you have forgiveness, you have life. Sin and death and hell, but in Jesus' reign, there is redemption and restoration. That's the kind of king Jesus is. That's, that's the answer, really, to Pilate's question. We think sometimes, though, that we want an enemy-crushing, name-taking king. But instead, in God's incredible kindness, we get one who turns his enemies into brothers and sisters. This is God's purpose in coronating Jesus as king. That he would redeem us for himself, that he would save us from our sin, and that he would rule and reign over us in love and in grace. What is this kingdom like then? If that's the kind of king Jesus is, and that's really what we're getting at there, what, what is his kingdom like? And I think it's important to understand and and establish here that when we talk about a king's kingdom, we're not talking about something less than the king himself, right? The perfect king, the ideal king, his kingdom looks like he would have it look. His kingdom reflects his values. His kingdom reflects his justice. His kingdom reflects his grace and love, right? So as we talk about his kingdom, don't think we're talking about something different than the king. We're talking about an extension of King Jesus' rule and reign. What is it like? What is his kingdom like? 
Uh, Jesus' response to Pilate reveals some significant differences between his kingdom and all the earthly kingdoms of the world. And I think we should probably have expected that. In verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not from here. It's almost like they're in some sort of a western, you know. And Pilate's there twirling his gun and he looks at Jesus and asks him, where are you from? And Jesus says, my kingdom's not from here. You don't even know the half of what you're asking me. You have no concept of where I am from. You have no understanding of the kingdom that I rule over and lead. In verse 37, he tells Pilate, you're right to say that I am a king. But as he proceeds to explain what his kingdom looks like, it is clear that Pilate does not know the half of what it means for Jesus to be king. The kingdoms of earth are then contrasted with the kingdom that Jesus uh, leads and has. Earthly kingdoms, he points out, are, are on the defensive they're protective, even to the point of violence, because, because earthly kingdoms rightly understand that this is all that there is for them, for their kingdom. The kingdoms of this world will all pass away. They all have an expiration date. Whether we'll admit it or not, we know this to be true, which is why anyone with any authority or power in any kingly Caesar-like sense would be really concerned with a man like Jesus going around claiming to be a king because that is an imminent threat. And so the kingdoms of, of earth are, are defensive, they're protective. But the kingdom of heaven that Jesus represents is something completely different. Jesus highlights that the essence of his kingdom, the very reason why he has come, is to bear witness to eternal, unyielding, unstoppable truth. I want you to soak that in. Earthly kingdoms are temporary. They're built on seizing and wielding earthly power, which is temporary and finite. But Jesus' kingdom, which looks nothing like the kingdoms of the world, is one where the truth is proclaimed, where Jesus, the king himself, bears witness to this truth. His subjects are marked not by outward signs or uniforms, but by the ability to listen and heed the truth. And in this sense, Jesus' kingdom is more subtle and frankly more subversive than any earthly kingdom can imagine. Because you can't see the truth flying around. You can't build walls to, to protect and keep the truth out, I mean, no matter how hard you might try. The kingdom of Jesus is an invisible kingdom, and the weapons of, of, of his invasion are, are those of the, the truth of reality as he defines it, of the gospel itself. And what he has come to do, which no one can thwart. This is the nature of his kingdom. The sole purpose of Jesus' earthly ministry was to bear witness to the truth. And we read this several weeks ago in John chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him in Jesus. 
You know what this means, though? This means, well, there's a lot of implications for this. Among them, though, example Jesus, the view that Jesus is really just a good guy, that we can maybe model our lives after and strive to be more and more like, example Jesus, that's really kind of a silly, almost ridiculous notion of a way to, to relate to him and understand him. When, when he has just described him as a king who bears witness to the truth in such a way that all those who are his hear it and receive it. You know, Pilate is dismissive. He's frustrated. He, he retorts back to Jesus kind of curtly, what is the truth? Or rather, what is truth? And likewise, we ourselves, as Christians or not, we are tempted to minimize the witness of Christ, especially when it offends us, and look instead to the the elements of him that we like, or the things that maybe would appeal more to the world around us, the things that aren't going to cause any sort of disruption in society for you as a Christian to, oh, I follow Jesus in this way, but I'm not going to talk about all these ways that his truth actually bears down on the broken systems and, and ideologies of this world. It's easy for us to dismiss the teaching of Jesus. It's easy for us to dismiss the reality that he is putting forward in his words and in the gospel in favor of the things that are maybe more palatable for us, especially the exemplary life that Jesus certainly lived. Even the air that we breathe, the language that we use. How often have you heard someone said or maybe even said yourself, well, this is my truth. And it's an effort to sound sophisticated. It's an effort to sound like you've really thought things through and that you're putting forward some philosophy into the world that has to be reckoned with. And yet all the while, if everyone's got their own truth, in fact, ironically, it unravels the very idea of anything being true. And it flies in the face of what Jesus is describing here. No, he, he bears witness to the truth. And either either you agree with him or you don't. Either you align yourself with reality or or you're living a lie. Those are the choices. That's That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus is leading and bringing into the world. But not only can you not really get away with looking at Jesus as a mere example, it's also kind of short sighted because it limits. Or sometimes we have the tendency, rather, to limit the scope of Jesus' kingdom to earthly matters and means. Let me rephrase that. We have the tendency to limit the scope of Jesus' kingdom to earthly matters and means, which is not just foolish, but it is very short-sighted. Because what Jesus is talking about here, what he's describing here, is nothing short of eternal truth. It's nothing less than the gospel, which, which spans time and space. It, it has far-reaching implications for every aspect of life. Pilate is preoccupied with the security of Caesar's throne as if Jesus needs that. As if Jesus doesn't command the cattle on a thousand hills. This is Pilate's concern. Are you a threat to Caesar? Jesus says, I'm, I made Caesar. What are you talking about? This, this, is, this is my world. 
truth is the gospel is impossible to stop. The gospel is impossible even to contain. It can't be slowed down. And that's the, that's the beauty, that's the power of Jesus' kingdom is that, is that the gospel, as the gospel goes forward, as people hear who Jesus is and what he has done, as people align themselves with, with reality as he has defined it, we enter into his kingdom. That's how his kingdom advances and spreads. And this, I think, really, really flies in the face of arguments that are increasingly popular today, that advancing the kingdom of God comes through political, earthly power. But Jesus doesn't need Caesar's throne. Rather, the kingdom proceeds as the king bears witness. And everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. The truth is more subtle, but it can also be more direct. And in every way, it is more effective than any campaign that any politician has ever waged. So how should we live? How should we live? A few thoughts come to mind, a few implications here. I think we should, especially as Christians, consider the humility of Christ and, and then make a point to imitate it. As you read the story, perhaps you have lost sight of the incredible indignity of Jesus being questioned by Pilate. I mean, think about this. If what Jesus has said is true and he really is a king whose kingdom is waged by the truth going forward, simply spreading through the earth. If that's the kind of king he is and the kind of authority and power and dominion that is his, I mean, how undignified is this scene? Pilate is not even Caesar, although Caesar wishes he had the authority that Jesus had. No, Pilate is merely a governor in play, put in place by Rome to watch out for the Jews in Israel. Any authority he has has been granted to him by God Almighty. And he deigns to question Jesus about his authority. It's incredible indignity. It's, it's tempting uh, or it would be tempting to revile Pilate in return. Now, but that's not the way of Jesus' kingdom. We can compare the Jews' false piety and, and just how arrogant they appear to be in the story. We can look at Pilate's own sense of self-importance. But when we compare these things to the humility of Jesus, it's mind-blowing. 1 Peter 2 Verses 20 through 24 says that if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter's speaking to believers. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Even as Jesus faced the injustice and indignity of the cross, even as he was punished for our wrongdoing, he, he in fact, did all of this in love. And rather than reviling those who deserved the punishment that he received, he laid down his life to save them. And, and so then we as his people, as those who are citizens of his kingdom, by faith, we ourselves are also called to have the same witness to the kingdom of God. And I, I, I'm not going to go into depth on this, but I, I think we can all imagine the many opportunities we have had or certainly will have in the future to revile those who, who look down on us, especially especially specifically for, for our understanding of who Jesus is, the gospel by which he has come to redeem sinners for himself. It, the, there's a temptation there to revile in return. But, but that's not the way of Jesus' kingdom. Look at how he experienced the indignity even of being questioned by Pilate and consider for yourselves how that should be reflected in your own life as well. Second implication of this is that it's Jesus' world, Jesus' world, and we are all living in it. It's Jesus' world, and we are all living in it. Which means if you're a Christian, don't lose heart, and don't act rashly, but instead bear witness to the truth. Who is Jesus? What has he done? If you know the answers to those questions, if you believe the gospel, if you consider yourself to be a citizen of the kingdom of God over which Jesus rules and reigns, then your responsibility as a citizen of that kingdom is likewise to bear witness to the truth. And that comes through words, it comes through actions. The world's reaction to Jesus is to dismiss him, to be above it all, even in many cases to simply be oblivious to the reality of what he has said and done. And of course, this is the fruit of self-importance and false piety. But like the parable of the soils, the truth is planted through the words and actions of God's people, and before you know it, a harvest is ready. That's what the kingdom of God is like. That's the kingdom that Jesus is king over. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we, we want to submit ourselves to your word. We, we want to subject ourselves to the, the authority of Christ in our own lives. And Father, as we look at Jesus, even as he's questioned here by Pilate, how... We cannot help but marvel at his incredible love and patience. But also the, the, the wonderful, marvelous truth that your kingdom is not advancing through anything other than the spread and witness of the gospel. The truth of who Jesus is, that he has come to earth. He is God and man who has come to reconcile and redeem a people for himself. By faith, you move us into his kingdom. Lord, help us to believe, help us to walk with eyes to see that reality more and more. 
so that our grip on the things of this world might loosen and our affection and our dependence on the Lord might only strengthen day by day. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.